Church, afternoon. Thank you for joining with us this afternoon to come and open God's Word a second time today uh, from the book of Acts, uh, not in First Timothy as Richard is in the morning, but in the book of Acts. And you would know that uh, as you've been here, we've been uh, traveling through Acts for a number of years now, and it's just been a, uh, a plethora of really practical uh, truths which we can both learn of and also apply in our fellowship here. And today will be uh, nothing different, uh, still more practical truths for us to be gathering in our minds as the Spirit of God leads us through through the Word of God in Acts chapter 21, verse 17 to verse 26. Uh, we are coming to consider a passage today, I'll just give you a little heads up, that uh, on the surface seems as if it's something that will be far removed from our own particular fellowship. And while the uh, application of what is happening here is far removed from our fellowship, the principle derived from this passage here today is always relevant for, in it, it teaches us how to come together as the body of Christ with our cultural differences and uh, really just things in which we might do a little bit differently, even in how we would be worshiping God and how we can set those aside to the glory of God and worship Him in spite of the, maybe the cultural differences that we ourselves have. And so in Acts chapter 21, we see this happening here in verse 17 to verse 26, where we see this example of believers in the Lord coming together and having to set aside their differences in order that Christ would be honored and glorified in their fellowship, that Christ would be all in all. And so again, Acts 21, verse 17 to 26, and it says this, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those whom have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to their customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality." Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we have to be able to once again come and to consider your word. We are just so privileged that we have this free opportunity to gather as the body of Christ here in the city of Hollywood to just open your word and, and to just look at it verse by verse in order that we would be able to not only understand it, but also to live it, Lord, in the fellowships which we have uh, here at First Baptist Church. Lord, we know that you are drawing us together as one, just as you have made us one through the atoning work of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And we ask that you would teach us what it means to live this out practically in order that our fellowship would be one, that the world would see that you have called us your own, and that Jesus is who you sent the, to, to be the redeeming, uh, the redeeming sacrifice for the sins of all who would call upon him by faith. God, we know that you are seeking to save the lost, and we know that through our fellowship you will use it in order that we will be able to shine as lights in the midst of the darkness. And so may we learn what this looks like today in order that we will be able to take our witness, not only here in our fellowship, but out into the world, which so desperately needs Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
Now, over the last few weeks of our time together considering Acts, what we have been considering really in a sub-point is that there is this theme which exists between the church, being Jew or Gentile, which has some animosity between the individuals. Paul has been making his way to Jerusalem, and he's been traveling there uh, for quite some time. We've looked at that beginning in Acts chapter 21 from verse 1 to verse 16, where Paul was traveling through all of these regions, and he's making his way over into Jerusalem in order that he would be able to deliver the offering that he has collected from the Gentile churches to the Jerusalem church, which is predominantly Jewish. He's doing this for two purposes. One purpose is that the Jerusalem church is quite impoverished given that it has found itself living through a famine and also with the persecution that it's facing from the early stages of the church being spread out uh, through the Apostle Paul's persecution and also just the persecution that's generally happening there in the heart of the Judaistic faith. And so there's a lot of persecution happening. People are quite poor, those who have renounced Judaism and have now gone over into the New, uh, the new Covenant uh, people, the, uh, the people that Jesus Himself has saved. They've gone over into the New Covenant. They're no longer uh, living under the Old Covenant, rather in the New Covenant, and they are facing this persecution. And so they're losing their jobs, and they're becoming quite poor. Well, Paul's taken up this collection from the Gentile churches to bring to the Jewish churches in order that they would be able to care for them. And this is both practically in consideration, but also theologically, it is for the purpose that Paul would be able to seek to unite the church together as one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. Taking the Gentile church's money and bringing it to the Jewish church money would go a long way in bridging that gap that is existing between them because of the cultural differences that the Jews and the Gentiles have. The Jews coming from uh, being God's people and the Gentiles not knowing the true God, they now have been brought as one. They are under the firm foundation of Christ, and yet practically speaking, they still have many cultural differences that are dividing them. And so Paul, in seeking to uh, rid them of that animosity, that may exist between them does this collection in order that he would be able to unite the Jew and the Gentile together. Now, as Paul does this, we're going to read, and we already read it, but we're going to look at in more detail. Paul finds himself giving the money to the Jerusalem church, so it's not mentioned. He gives the money to the Jerusalem church, and the Jerusalem church says, Paul, we've got a little bit of animosity which is existing right now. You see, there's been some rumors about you that you're not telling the Jews who live in the diaspora to continue in the customs of Moses. There's some animosity, and before we introduce you to the rest of the church here, before, you know, you start coming fellowship with us, we need you to do something which will prove to the Jewish Christians here that you are not who the Judaizers are saying you are. They have this animosity which exists, and they need to figure out how to solve this problem. More on that in a moment. What I want us to consider first as we think about this is how is it that we often will solve issues of animosity when it comes to our own fellowship? Or taking it from the world, how often is it that the world will come together to solve their problems in a way in which doesn't produce any reconciliation, but rather further divides the world? How often is it that we see individuals coming together to bring reconciliation rather than a further divide amongst one another? If you think about how the world tries to solve its problems, there's really three ways in which they do it. One such way that the world tries to solve its problems is by just thinking as if the problem does not exist. They act as if the problem doesn't exist. Now, it certainly does, whether it's in an individual's mind or not. There's a problem which exists, but the way in which they solve it is just by saying, well, if we don't talk about it, we don't think about it, with time, you know, that problem's going to go away. But the reality is, is that problem just continues to fester until it blows up in everybody's face, and it's a much bigger problem to solve. 
much like the husband and wife who maybe the husband or the wife has an issue with the inner individual, and he says, well, what's wrong? Or she says, well, what's wrong? And you say, well, nothing, everything's fine. But in reality, you know something's wrong. You're just not willing to communicate it to that person, and then you end up walking on eggshells throughout that relationship. Nothing happens. Nothing is settled. That's one way that the world tries to solve its problems by just simply saying, well, we're just not going to say anything, and, and maybe it'll go away. Well, still, there is another tendency of the world to fight. That is, the, the offending party tries to beat the, uh, the, uh, victor, uh, the, the victim, tries to uh, beat the offending party into submission. They say, well, I'm going to get my way one way or another, and if I have to beat you into submission to seeing my way, well, then you're going to do what I am telling you to do. This is an individual who will try to intimidate someone into changing their ways, and they often lead to a riot by gathering a bunch of people to try to riot against the individual that they have a problem with in order that they would be able to get their way and that the solution that they wish to have come about comes about. We saw this happen in Acts chapter 19. Uh, if you're with us, we know that Paul and the church, they were in Ephesus, and uh, the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel, and many people were being saved. And what was happening was the individuals in Ephesus were getting rid of their idols. That was the goddess Artemis that they were worshiping. They were getting rid of those idols. They weren't buying the idols anymore. And so Demetrius and his crew got together, and they said, we need to put a stop to what Paul is doing here. I've got a problem with Paul. He's preaching the gospel too much, and people are not buying our idols anymore. And so the world, in solving its problems as the world does, they fight. They riot, and they drag the Christians into the theater, and they try to stop them from continuing in proclaiming the message of the gospel. Well, the only thing that stops them ultimately is that uh, one individual who was the townsman, uh, he stood up and he said, listen, we're going to get into trouble if we continue in this riot here. The Roman Empire is going to come down hard on us, and so we need to stop doing this. And so the resolution came not because they came to see the truth of the gospel, but rather because they were afraid of what the government was going to do to them. And therefore, when they fought, all that ended up happening in their resolution was that they only pacified themselves for a time. Because later on in Ephesus, we know from church history that there was still this, this uh, battle between the Christians and the idolatrous worship that was, that was of the Artemis, Artemisians uh, who were worshiping Artemis uh, uh, and this goddess that they, they loved and they proclaimed and they worshiped. They were the uh, greatest Artemis of the Ephesian people. Uh, nothing was resolved. It was only pacified for a time. Still, you have those when dealing with controversies or animosities who do not try to forget about it. Rather, it tears them up inside. They also do not wish to fight about it. They are not willing to go about it in an uh, aggressive way, but rather in a passive way. What they will seek to do is they just try to run from it altogether. They try to run from the situation altogether. They don't want to deal with it. They remove themselves from the situation entirely. They're not just walking around on eggshells. They rather flee the place because they don't want to deal with the animosity as it is coming. Rather, they think if they just run and start their life over wherever it is they plan on going in another place or go to another church rather than staying at the church where the animosity exists, well, then everything's going to be well. But you see, the problem is, is that we cannot run from our problems. They exist. They will continue to exist until the Lord brings us to Himself and we are in perfection with Him. And I mentioned these ways in which the world often seeks to respond to the tension and the animosity which exists within its fellowship out in the world and however they do things is because as believers, we do not have this option when it comes to resolving potential conflict with members of the body of Christ. We cannot walk around on eggshells as if nothing has happened. 
We cannot fight one another, and we certainly cannot run from one another because if we run, we divide ourselves from the body of Christ who the Spirit of God has united us to as one member, meaning that we all as individual members of the body have been united to Christ's body, and thereby we have been made into one flesh. And so if we run from the body of Christ, well, we're running from that which we belong to. And even though we pull ourselves out of it maybe practically, the reality is is we are limiting our witness and also limiting our effectiveness in the world because we are not united to Christ who is our nourishment and our strength. And what's quite comical to think about when the world or when the church fights like this or when the church is divided like this is the world looks at us and they laugh. And the reason they laugh is because they know, they know the teachings of Christ. They know that Christ has said he has made us one. And so when the world sees us fighting, they think it odd. They say, why are you guys hitting yourself, right? Or, or why did you cut your arm off there? That's nonsense. Why are you fighting with those who are supposedly your family? Why are you doing these things? You see, Christ has bound us up together as one body, and therefore we are to work towards that practically in our fellowships. Romans chapter 15, verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, the issues which exist in the body of Christ will often have many variables. There are many times in which we have to come to a head with one another because of sin which exists in the body of Christ. And what we must understand is that if sin exists within the body of Christ, we must confront it head on as the Scriptures tell us because in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, it tells us that if sin uh, is allowed to fester in the church, it will spring up a root of bitterness which by many will become defiled through it. Hebrews 12, verse 15 says, "...see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God." that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see, there are those uh, uh, issues which come up within the church that result from continuous, unrepentant sin that can be quite problematic and contentious if left undealt with. We as the church must confront that sin head-on, not to condemn the brother or sister who is in it, but rather to restore them to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Still, you have issues which arise from individuals who wish to bring in false teachings to the church. As Pastor Richard preached on this morning, there are going to be those who rise up within the body of Christ who wish to bring about uh, uh, endless discussions about things which have no spiritual value to the individuals who are listening to them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6 and verse 7 says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, that is the truth, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now finally, what you have is there are those conflicts which arise within the church, not because of sin, not because of false teachers, but naturally because you have individuals with diverse cultural backgrounds who have different personalities and separate ways of doing things. This is often described as the conflict which exists between the strong and the weak, the strong brother and the weak brother in the Lord. Now, by weak, this is not meaning sin. Weakness, when it's referring to the weak brother, it is never uh, the strong who is going to give way to the weaker brother who is in sin. Rather, what this is, is this is an individual, the weak brother, this is an individual whose conscience is seared by the strong brother living out their freedoms in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this uh, example which happens throughout the Scriptures, especially you go to Romans chapter 14, and you see it most notably, but we'll go there later, uh, where you see this, these, uh, these individuals who, who know the freedom that they have in Christ to live out those freedoms that Christ has given to them. But still there are those who are weak in the faith, the immature brothers or sisters in the faith, who not yet having realized those freedoms have their conscience seared because they see their brother or their sister living out those freedoms which they have 
in Christ. You see, what happens when we live out our freedoms in Christ and the weak brother sees us is that it causes for us, through living out the things in which we certainly can do because we are free in Christ, it causes for us to sear the conscience of our brother and thereby it leads them into sin. And so as we're going to see today here, what we must understand as we come to fellowship with one another is that within our fellowship there are going to be cultural distinctives, there are going to be uh, differences of opinions, things in which are not related to sin whatsoever, but rather just practical things which come up in our fellowship, and we need to learn how to respond to those in order that our fellowship would be able to be one in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we could fellowship without the bickering or without the fighting or without the, the uh, tension or the animosity which exists in the world, which is unwilling to meet their differences head-on, but rather to meet them head-on, understand how we respond to those things, and then live them out to the glory of our great God. You see, this is the issue that is at hand today here in Acts chapter 21, verse 17 to verse 26. It is how is it that we are to solve conflicts with the weaker brother, or better yet, how do we prevent conflicts with the weaker brother that we are seeking to fellowship with? Well, we'll see it here, but beginning, what we do is we must see how, how Luke sets the scene for us, and we will pick it up there before we get into how Paul goes about settling this conflict which exists between him being the strong and his brothers, the Jewish Christians, being the weaker brothers. In verse 17 to verse 20, Luke kind of sets the scene of Paul's initial landing in Jerusalem. It says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. So they begin with fellowship. Paul, he is with his traveling party. They've made it all the way to Jerusalem. Finally, Paul gets to the place he wanted to be. And because of the amount of the crowd that uh, we see later on in Acts chapter 21 when the riot occurs, we know that Paul made it when he wanted to make it, which was during the feast days of Pentecost. Paul is there. He's delivered the money to the Jews, the Jewish Christians, that is, and he is, re he is uh, reciting to them all that God has done. And the Jewish Christians who are with him are rejoicing. They are rejoicing at what God Himself has done through the Gentiles. Paul is recounting to them one by one God's saving acts as he was ministering to the individuals all throughout the, the uh, uh, European world in which he went to, the Asia, uh, in Asia Minor and also in Galatia. He's telling them what God has done. You know, he's probably recounting to them his time in Ephesus when all of the individuals who used to be worshipers of the false gods had taken all of their magic books and had a uh, holy bonfire in the middle of the city where they just burned up everything. And Paul's telling them about that. And he's probably also telling them about how he was training up the elders in Ephesus, and he left them just recently, and, and he sent them back to Ephesus that they would be able to care for the church of God as they had been entrusted to uh, their care, to be the watchman over them. He's telling them about all of these things, and they're excited about this. They're glorifying God because of what the Gentiles, or what Paul is telling them about the Gentiles. They, they know that the Gentiles are being saved, and this is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful truth. The Jewish Christians are rejoicing that God is saving those who were once outside of the people of God, but now who have been grafted in through their faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this rejoicing that's happening here is happening amongst every single one of the individuals who are present here. It says, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done, and when they heard it, they glorified God. There is rejoicing and celebration amongst every single individual as to what God himself is doing. Now, while we do not know how long Paul planned to stay here in Jerusalem, we do know that he wasn't planning on staying here all that long. 
He was going to stay, maybe stay for a little while, deliver the money, fellowship with the Jewish Christians there, hear more about what God is doing there. And then as he told the Romans in Romans chapter 15, I plan to go to you and then I'm going to go to Italy after that. And so Paul probably relates to these Jewish Christians, James and the rest of the elders who were there, that he wants to stay for some time. You know, he probably says, I've delivered the money to you now. I've I've told you what God has done. And and now I kind of want to get to meet some of the Christians who are here. You know, that's something that you would do. You want to go to a new town and you go to a church. You go find, you go go to the new town. You want to find the church to see who the Christians are there. That's what we do as Christians. We fellowship with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so Paul tells these guys, hey, I'd I'd like to meet some of the people in the church. You know, can can you introduce me to them? Well, this is where the problem comes. You see, there's some animosity which exists that has been festering for some time as Paul was going throughout his missionary journeys. There's a problem that could inhibit their fellowship. And so before Paul is introduced to the rest of the Christians here in Jerusalem, the elders of the church, that is James and the rest of the men who are there, they say, Paul, before you do this, we want to let you know of something that's going on. And this is where we pick it up in order that we would be able to understand how we can fellowship with our brothers and sisters, even in the midst of some some cultural distinctives that might Uh, regularly separate us if we weren't a part of the body of Christ, but which we can overlook or even participate in as members of the body of Christ in order that our unity might be sweet. In uh, in chapter uh, 21, verse 20, in the second part, all the way to uh, verse 22, we see the problem that could be inhibiting Paul's fellowship with these Jewish Christians. It says, after they heard it and they glorified God, they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So there's Jewish Christians. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. And so what they're trying to do here is they're both trying to uh, uh, censor Paul from, from just going and meeting these individuals and having to face that, that animosity head on where they're like, what are you doing saying these things about to these Jewish Christians, telling them they can't do what Moses called for us to do in circumcising our children? Before there was that confrontation, these guys say, hey, listen, we want to let you know the problem that is inhibiting your fellow, your, your, would inhibit your fellowship here. And so Paul is told by James that many of the Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem have been led to believe that Paul is teaching Jewish Christians in the diaspora, that is anywhere outside of the land of Israel, he is teaching these Christians, these Jewish Christians, that they are to no longer follow after the law of Moses, and they are also not to perform any of the religious customs in which they would have been familiar with being brought up in the Old Covenant faith. They're saying that Paul is saying you need to not do this any longer. Do not do this any longer. He has forbid it outright. Now, this is a big issue for those who were Jewish because even though they had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, many of the cultural practices which they performed were from the Old Covenant system in which Moses had delivered through the angels as an intermediary, which was delivered by God for the people of God. And so therefore, if Paul's saying don't do these things anymore, this is going to create some problems for these Jewish Christians who still wish to live uh, uh, under those uh, Old Covenant commands. Not for way of salvation, but rather simply as an expression of their faith in the one true God of Israel who has saved them. You see, this spells trouble for Paul if he is saying these things because the Jewish Christians who are living in Jerusalem are zealots of the law. They are zealous for the law. They still wish to keep the law even though they have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, if Paul is to go in fellowship with these individuals, knowing what Paul has said, they are going to immediately restrict Paul from coming into their fellowship because they see Paul as an anti-Semite, as an individual who hates the Jews rather than one who himself is a Jew, having been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator says, to Jewish residents of Israel, Torah observance was not just a theological commitment, but also a national and a cultural one. To abandon the Torah would not only have been disloyal and unpatriotic, but was tantamount to discarding of Jewish identity. So as you can imagine, this would create a rift between Paul and the others. Now, before we go any further with this, I want to emphasize this fact, and we must understand this if we are to uh, uh, truthfully and, and uh, accurately apply the principle that we're going to learn here today. You see, these Jewish Christians were not zealots for the law by way of salvation. They were not wanting to do these things because they thought by them God was going to be appeased with them. They did not do these in order to gain any inch of salvation. Rather, they knew that they had been saved by the grace of God through faith in the Messiah alone and that by any works of the law they would not be justified. However, being that they were brought up in these customs and these ceremonies, they wanted to keep these things as an expression of their worship of the one true God who had saved them from their sins. Had this been an issue like the one addressed in Acts chapter 15, where you had the Judaizers who were coming and say, you need to do all of these works of the law in order that you could be saved, well, then there would have been an entirely different confrontation that Paul would have here with these individuals. We would not have seen Paul uh, uh, accommodating this request, but rather we would have seen Paul uh, get out the word and say, listen, you guys are wrong in this here. It is not through the works of the law that we will be justified. Rather, it is only by faith in the Messiah that one could be saved. But as it was, these individuals were not thinking they were going to be saved by these things. Rather, as a cultural expression of their worship of God, they wished to keep these things in order that they would be able to worship God and keep what they considered to be their cultural identity. You see, this was merely the desire of the Jewish Christians to keep their cultural identity, which was God-ordained, which the practice of, in and of itself, was the Jews wish of, wishing to express their devotion to God, and so thereby it was not sinful in any way, shape, or form. Had they been doing these things to try to be saved, that is where the sin would have existed and Paul would have confronted it head on. But because Paul himself knew that they were just simply wishing to express devotion to God, Paul himself obliged to these individuals asking of him to do these things. Now, I want us to step back here for a moment because we need to understand that what the Jews have been led to believe by whoever it is that is telling them these things about Paul, what they have been led to believe is a flat-out lie. It is a total and uh, complete lie. It is a distortion of the truth from God's Word, that which Paul himself was proclaiming as he was training up these individuals all throughout the diaspora in, in Ephesus or in Philippi or in the Galatian territory or in Rome. All of these individuals who Paul was discipling, these Jewish Christians, would know that what the individuals are saying about him in Jerusalem is a flat-out lie. You see, Paul had never told anyone they could not continue in the law of Moses, nor did he tell them to forsake Moses. He also never told them to, circumc to not circumcise their children or walk according to the customs of their forefathers. Paul never said to not do any of these things. And so it is a flat-out lie which these individuals have been led to believe. You say, who is the one that is telling these lies? Well, it's the Judaizers. If you know about the Judaizers, these were the guys back in Acts chapter 15 that really disrupted the church for quite some time. They were going around saying that you were going to be saved. Sure, you place your faith in the Messiah, but you also need to keep the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to do all of these things in order that you can be saved. If you do not do these things, you cannot be saved. 
And on top of this, they were also making this a requirement for all of the Gentiles who were being saved by faith in the Messiah. These were those individuals, these legalists, these individuals who still exist today that always want to add law to grace. They always want to say it is not by grace through faith that you can be saved, but rather you need to add these works of salvation in order that God will accept you totally and truthfully. And so you have these Judaizers who are going around Jerusalem who are trying to, uh, trying to change the mind of these individuals about who the Apostle Paul actually was. They are trying to lead these individuals to become prejudiced against the Apostle Paul and thereby disrupt the fellowship because Paul and the Judaizers had quite the history. They followed him into Galatia, and you read in Galatians, you know that Paul's talking about these Judaizers, and he's saying, how could you guys be so quickly deceived by these Judaizers who are trying to add works to salvation? It cannot be done. They also followed him into Thessalonica, and they followed him throughout the, uh, uh, the areas in which he was ministering in Asia Minor. They were following him everywhere. They hated Paul. And so those who were there in Jerusalem were poisoning the minds of the Jer Jerusalem Christians, the Jewish Christians, to the point where they were trying to prejudice them against Paul uh, totally so that, that Paul could not fellowship with the church there. But you see, Paul never taught what they were saying Paul himself was teaching. It says that this is what they were told. They were told that Paul teaches all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to their customs. Paul never taught any of these things. You need only look throughout the books of the New Testament that Paul himself wrote to see that Paul never gave an outright condemnation against these things. Rather, what Paul taught against concerning these things was that they were not necessary for salvation. But as we know, Satan likes to twist his word. His emissaries are going to try to twist the word as well. And so what they say is that Paul saying, don't get circumcised anymore. Paul saying, don't, uh, don't uh, follow after Moses and what Moses said to do anymore. Paul saying, don't keep the feasts anymore. Paul didn't say any of that. Paul is saying, do not do these things for salvation. For if you do these things for salvation, you cannot be saved because by no works of the law can anyone be justified. But you see, he never outright forbid these things. It's interesting, uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 about the Apostle Paul's teachings that many people try to twist them to lead people away from God and the grace in which he is given. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 15, uh, he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. And so Peter says, listen, when you read what Paul writes here, it's going to be a little bit difficult to understand, but you need to look beyond the surface in order that you would not be led astray by individuals who are going to try to twist what the Apostle Paul himself was teaching. They're saying that Paul is saying you cannot be circumcised, you cannot keep any of the law, and you certainly cannot participate in any of the customs. That would be the Feast of Pentecost or, or even taking a vow or even going into the Feast of the Passover. You couldn't do any of these things according to the Apostle Paul, which is what the Judaizers were saying. But did Paul say this? No. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, we see one example of what Paul himself teaches concerning circumcision. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace." 
For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And so here Paul is remarking about the Judaizers' teaching concerning circumcision, that namely, you need to be circumcised uh, in order that you could be saved. And Paul says, if you wish to count circumcision towards your salvation, you cannot be saved. He never forbid it, though. He says, in Christ Jesus, if you want to get circumcised, get circumcised. If you don't want to be circumcised, don't be circumcised. It doesn't count for anything. Do it if you want. Don't have to if you don't want to. That's not a prohibition against it. That's not saying the Jews cannot do this. That's not saying the Gentiles have to do this. It's simply saying let each one respond to their conscience concerning this. If they want to be circumcised, let them be circumcised. If they don't want to be circumcised, they don't have to be circumcised here. You see, they're twisting Paul's words in order that they could poison the individuals against the one who God had sent out into all the nations to proclaim his gospel and to be used by him to write much of the New Testament which we have here today. What's even more telling about this lie that the Judaizers say about the Apostle Paul is that if they knew Paul's life, they would know that Paul himself did not teach these things. You go back to Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, this is right after the Jerusalem council when the elders of the church and the church itself decided that they were not going to require circumcision for the Gentiles. And they certainly were not going to make it a matter for salvation. Rather, they had decided definitively that salvation is a free gift from God. You come to God as a Jew or a Gentile and He will accept you on the basis of your faith and not on account of who you are whatsoever. And so they said that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised and Jews can continue to keep the law if that is what they wish to do. Well, in Acts chapter 16 here, Paul himself goes to uh, circumcise an individual who has both a Gentile and a Jewish heritage. Here is an individual who would have been seen as a Jew by the Jews. And so Paul, for expediency's sake, said, Timothy, you're a grown man, but you need to be circumcised because if you're going to come on the missionary journey with me, the Jews are immediately going to reject you if they know that you are not circumcised. Now, how would they know? Well, the public baths, they would have realized that he himself was not circumcised, and that would have prevented him from being able to be an effective witness. So in Acts 16, it says, Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So for the Judaizers to say that Paul was saying, no, you can't be circumcised as a Jew, Paul would say, I had Timothy circumcised. What are you talking about here, right? You go to Acts chapter 18 beyond that, and you see that Paul himself took a Nazarite vow. Paul himself in Acts chapter 18, verse 18 says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centuria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Does this sound like someone who was preventing the Jews who are living in the diaspora from living out the customs that Moses had given to them? Absolutely not. Here is an individual who rather is allowing for each individual to make their own choice as to whether or not they wish to do these things. In Acts chapter 20, you read uh, in the early portion of it, in verse 6, it says, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of the unleavened bread. This is Passover. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. So here is Paul circumcising a Jewish individual uh, who the the Judaizers said Paul would not do. He's also taken a vow for his own life, 
and he also has kept the Passover, a feast which the Judaizers are saying that Paul is telling the Jews who live in the diaspora they cannot do these things. And so for anyone to say that Paul was teaching these things was teaching a flat-out lie. Paul himself was not saying they could not do these things. Rather, if they were going to apply them to salvation, then it was where they should not or they could not do these things because they would nullify the grace of God. You see, it was not the ceremony of the law which he spoke against. What he spoke against was the insistence of some who said it was necessary for salvation. Now, Paul's innocent of these accusations, totally innocent. Paul was completely innocent. You look at his teachings and you look at his life, Paul himself would say these Judaizers are flat-out liars. But the problem still would exist because of the fact that the Judaizers had spent a lot of time uh, uh, propagating this lie, which led to many Jewish Christians' faith being seared as to whether or not Paul actually himself was teaching these things. And so it would not be enough for Paul to just say, listen, these guys are lying to you. Look at my writings. Look at my life. I don't teach these things. They don't know what they're talking about here. Don't listen to these individuals. No, it had gone too far. And so there needed to be some definitive act that Paul himself could do to prove to these Jewish Christians that he himself was not actually teaching these things. And if he did this, it would unite them in fellowship in a way in which there would be no tension, no animosity, because they would know that their brother Paul accepted what they were doing for their religious practice. You see, at this point in time here uh, in verse 21, verse 20, he says, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. At this point in Jerusalem, there were myriads of Christians. The thousands, that is the same word for myriad, which means 10,000. And there are myriads of Christians here. So there's probably around 30 to 40,000 Christians who are in Jerusalem at this time. And James says, Paul, you need to do something definitively to show all of these people that you are not who the Judaizers are saying you are. Something needs to be done in order to resolve the conflict that you would be able to fellowship with the Christians who are here. And we're going to see what they bring about for the solution, but as we apply it to our day, in our day, the problem which existed for Paul in Jerusalem is not much of an issue here. It's not an issue here. Really, we are predominantly Gentile, and so we don't necessarily have this problem with individuals wishing to keep the feast days or wishing to take vows or or wishing to keep the law of Moses if they please to do that. We don't have that issue here. If they want to do that, they're free to do that so long as they do not make it a salvation issue. What we have as a problem here in our day is much more related to some cultural expressions of the worship of God, which can create quite the conflict in our fellowships as people make them necessary for fellowship, or they make them necessary even for salvation. You know, there's those who raise their hands in worship and others do not. There are those who kneel to pray while there are others who do not kneel to pray. There are some who sing hymns and others who do not sing hymns. There are some who dress up while others do not choose to dress up. There's some people who gather for worship on a Sunday and others gather for worship on a Saturday. And still, there are some who use wine in communion and others who do not use wine in communion like ourselves. There are some who who are okay with tattoos and others who say, no, you can't have any tattoos. You won't be able to be saved if you have those things. You see, there are many instances that these differences, there are many, in many instances, these differences do not create any issues in the fellowship. But at times, there are those who, being the weaker brother, have their conscience seared one way or another because someone chooses to practice these things, and in turn, it will disrupt the fellowship of the body. You say, what is to be done in these instances here? 
What are we to do when there is a cultural practice or a cultural distinction or a tradition in which someone wishes to keep? What are we to do in order that our fellowship would be sweeter together as the body of Christ and we would not have these minor things disrupting us from focusing on the major things of God's Word? Well, as we'll see here, we are to accommodate the weaker brother. We are to oblige ourselves to their request. And we're going to see shortly how the Jerusalem church does this. But I want to give you an example of this, which will help us apply this principle even today. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my dad, who is a pastor, and, and he's no longer serving in the full-time ministry, but rather he still serves in an interim-type uh, ministry where he's an itinerant preacher. They'll ask him to preach, and he goes and preaches in these small country churches. Well, in Michigan, there are still many of those who have a strong affinity to the kingdom there because he knows that that is the text that they prefer that he preaches from. Nothing wrong with that. King James Version is a great translation. If someone wishes to use that, they certainly can use that. Well, there was one night when he was preaching at this old country church where they had an affinity to the King James Version translation, and what he decided to do, uh, not because he was trying to disrupt them, but rather because he thought it would be helpful for them to be able to understand what he was preaching from, he was preaching from Revelation chapter 3, and uh, he said the King James was kind of choppy at some point, and so he said, well, I'll preach from the NIV tonight so that I don't have to explain so many things, and I can just get right to the point of what the text is actually saying. And so he's preaching from the NIV. Well, he said he was preaching, and he was reading from it, and he heard this one couple, and they were flipping through their pages, and he saw that they were getting really anxious. They were getting very, very anxious. Well, at the end of the service, they come up to him, and they condemn him for not preaching from the King James Bible translation. They are condemning him. They're saying, what are you doing not preaching from the infallible King James translation? These are individuals who do not see it as just some mere translation, but rather they see it as the infallible translation which God has preserved in the English language. And by it, it is the only translation that anyone who speaks of the English language can be saved by. They cannot be saved from the NIV. Forget about the NASB. Forget about the ESV. It's only the KJB. They don't even call it a version. They call it the King James Bible because this is the only inspired Word of God. It is the authorized version for the English language. Well, now, my dad had quite the problem here with this because, you see, for a time, he would just preach from this Bible because he knew that individuals preferred that. But now we have an issue which is salvation-related. Now, if my dad was to say, okay, well, I'll preach from the King James if that's the only Bible you think people can be saved from, my dad himself is accommodating an individual in their sinful belief because the reality is, is the King James Bible is no better than the ESV or the NASB or any of the other modern translations which we have. All of them translate from the original languages, God's Word, into the English language so that it is easier for us to understand. No one of them is the infallible, inspired Word of God that exists only in the original manuscripts. And so my dad, in having to uh, restore fellowship with these individuals here, there is a problem. You've got to use the King James Bible translation, right? If my dad would have said, okay, I'll just do that, well, then he is succumbing to these individuals who are making a salvation issue out of a Bible translation, which is merely a tradition that individuals who like to listen to the King James Version, which is fine, who, who wish to uphold as a law and make it a means of salvation, which it cannot save. The King James Bible, the ESV Bible, none of those things in and of themselves save. It is the Word in the Gospel which alone has the power to save souls, and God will use any Bible translation to do that. You see, for my dad to accommodate their request on this would be wrong. But to accommodate someone who says, well, I prefer the King James Bible, that would be totally fine. If he goes there and those people are gone and the rest of the church says, yeah, we'd rather have the King James, okay, no problem, he'll preach from that. 
But you see, there is an issue which must, we must understand when it comes to seeking to accommodate the weaker brother in that we must understand that the weaker brother is not an individual who is having a sinful tradition or a sinful ideology, but rather it's just an individual who wishes to keep a tradition of theirs going. And if we wish to unify with them as we come in fellowship with them, we can accommodate to their request if it is not leading us ourselves into sin. Really, the principle is that if it is within the bounds of truth, we can accommodate the weaker brother's request. But if it is not, we must not compromise for the sake of their needs. Well, then we move to the next point to see how we can come to this where, where, the salute, where there's a problem which exists in the fellowship. It's there, animosity, there's some tension. What is the solution? How do we come to this solution? Well, we see the solution presented in verse 23 to verse 25. They say, do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality." You see, James and the rest of the elders here have produced a solution to change the viewpoint of the individuals who had been indoctrinated by the Judaizers. You see, they could not have Paul, could not have had Paul just say, okay, Paul, just tell them you don't teach these things. No, there was already a, a riotous behavior with these people. They were already angry. And nothing, nothing was going to appease these individuals' anger other than Paul himself taking a vow to show that he himself was not actually teaching these things. They say, Paul, we want you to do this vow. And Paul doesn't take a Nazarite vow. This is probably, uh, it probably would have taken a little bit longer for him to do that. But Paul himself takes a vow. And on top of this, they say, Paul, we also want you to take these four men who are under a vow. This would be the Nazarite vow. And we want you to go to the temple and we want you to pay their expenses as they express their devotion to God in this way. You see, there were four Christian men here, and we learn of them in verse 23, who were under a vow. And this was a Nazarite vow. If you're wanting to know what this is, you read number six, it tells you all about it. But ultimately, it was a vow of dedication to God, which would entail them growing out their hair, abstaining from grapevine products, and avoiding ritual defilement. At the conclusion of this vow, they were to go to the temple with each man's hair clippings, one male lamb for a burnt offering, one female lamb for a sin offering, a ram for a peace offering, one basket of matzah for a grain offering, and a container of wine for a drink offering. This was per vow. Now, to do this, Paul himself would have un had to undergo this week-long purification process so that he himself could be able to present these men in this way. You see, for Paul to do this would prove that he was not preaching to the Jews to forsake Moses and the customs of the Jews, since he himself would participate in that which the Judaizers were saying he was prohibiting. Well, now, as we think about this, uh, our minds might be going, no, is Paul actually okay in doing this here? I myself had a little bit of reservation reading this and seeing that, that Paul himself is going to accommodate these individuals' requests. You see, through the years, this resolution that James and the elders have produced for Paul to do has divided the church as to whether this was right in the sight of God. You know, Paul's going into the temple, the very temple where those who have rejected the Messiah are, the very temple in which the veil had been torn and everybody knew that the presence of God was not there anymore because God Himself had ascended up to His throne, Jesus Christ, and He was seated at the right hand of the Father forever, reigning in power. How could Paul go to this place and do these things? Many people are led to believe that Paul erred in doing this. 
You see, knowing the fullness we have now in Christ leads many people to believe that to participate in any of the Jewish ceremonies or festivals constitutes a betrayal of Christ in the highest degree. They say, it is blasphemy to do these things. It is blasphemous to take a vow. It is blasphemous to keep the law. It is blasphemous to do and participate in any of the customs. It's blasphemous to do any of these things. But still, there are others who would quite the opposite say, no, you've gotten it all wrong here. You see, the Jews in the Old Testament, they did these things looking forward to what the Messiah was going to do. Those who know of what the Messiah have done now look back at these things to see that the Messiah has brought fulfillment to all of these things, and they live these out not as if they're going to be saved by them, but rather to worship God for what He has done in showing the finality of these things in which they were called to celebrate, such as the Feast of the Passover. If you were with us when they did the Seder, when uh, our brother Cyril Gordon came and he taught this, a Jew for Jesus, he taught the Seder. He didn't just leave it at the Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come. Rather, he said, no, the Passover, the Seder in which we perform, the meal in which we perform points to Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of his sacrifice. Therefore, we do this not as if we are hoping for God to save us, but rather knowing that God has saved us through the sacrifice of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to restate this point here. You see, had James and the elders had Paul to do this to to pacify the Judaizers who were saying that you needed to do these things to be saved, this would have created the Jerusalem Council 2.0. There would have been immediately a call for all of the elders. The apostles would have had to return to Jerusalem, and they would have had to uh, definitively say once again that salvation is not by the works of the law, but it is totally by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, this is not what they were asking Paul to do. They were not asking him to appease the Judaizers who wished to make this a law to be saved. Rather, they were asking Paul to accommodate the Jewish believers' zeal for the law and customs of Moses so that there would be no barriers of hostility between them. And really, there was nothing wrong with them asking this request of Paul. If they wanted to keep the feasts and the customs, they were fine to do that if they did not make it a requirement for salvation. And we know that they were not making it a requirement for salvation because of what they say in verse 25. You see, in verse 25, they're talking to Paul. They're saying, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. They're saying, Listen, Paul, we're not asking you to tell the Gentiles to do this here. They don't have to do this. In fact, you don't even have to do this if you don't want to. But for the sake of fellowship, would you be willing to accommodate this request in order that you would be able to care for the Jews in the same way that you're caring for the Gentiles, who, and Paul was with the Gentiles, would live as a Gentile? Would you be willing to do this? You see, the logic behind this situation goes back to Acts chapter 15, and I want you to turn there with me to see it. In Acts chapter 15, verse 6 to 11, There is this debate in the Jerusalem Council. We preached for nearly a month on this to understand its significance. But in the Jerusalem Council, as I have said, there were individuals who were saying that you needed to be circumcised plus have faith in the Messiah in order to be saved. So all the apostles got together, the elders got together, and they said, let us determine what actually God himself has said. Well, in verse 6 in Acts chapter 15, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Now let's flip down to verse 19. He says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read in every Sabbath in the, he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so the logic behind this situation that James and the rest of the elders are producing to Paul is this. Paul, listen, we know what was decided at the Jerusalem Council. We are not saying that you need to do this to be saved. We are not saying you need to teach the Jews to do this to be saved. We are also not saying that you need to require the Gentiles to do this. But rather, just as we decided in the Jerusalem Council that the Gentile does not have to live as a Jew, we also decided that it was okay if the Jew wished to continue living as a Jew. You see, the Mosaic ceremonial law was not to be imposed upon Gentile Christians, but it was never said that the Jewish Christians had to forsake it as well. Rather, each person, Jew or Gentile, could choose to observe them or not to observe them. They were not bound in any way. Rather, they were free. They could choose to do it or they could not choose to do it. This was a matter of their own conscience. If they felt that if they did this, they were sinning against God or did not do this, they were sinning against God in some way, then they need not do it. If they felt that they could do this and it was going to bring worship to God, then certainly go forward and do this. You see, for the sake of Christian fellowship in Jerusalem, Paul was asked to accommodate these individuals' requests. And you ask me, was Paul under any obligation to do this? If Paul said, I'm not doing this, would that have made Paul any less of a Christian? No, none whatsoever. Paul could have said, listen, I'm not going to do these things. I don't need to do this. I'm not going to do this. But you see, Paul was always willing to accommodate the weaker brother for the sake of Christian fellowship. Paul had every right in the world to say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to spend my money on this. I'm not going to waste my time on this. No, I'm not going to do this. Let them figure out that you don't have to do these things. You know, having that arrogance, that arrogant attitude when an individual wishes to keep their freedoms free rather than allowing for themselves to be subjected to the weakness of one of their brothers or sisters in the faith. You see, Paul, for the sake of his brothers in the Lord, chose to oblige them as he did not want to see his brothers stumble by him living out his freedom in Christ. And this is a principle all throughout the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse uh, 9 to verse 13. He says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble." You see, oftentimes we may be asked in the ministry or in each community to engage in neutral practices that are culturally driven, not because we must, but because it may help present, prevent unnecessary static from getting, the way, getting in the way of our Christian fellowship. And if that is the reality for us, we do well as the stronger brother to accommodate the weaker brother in that in order that their conscience is not seared and in order that we would be able to unite together as one body in the Lord Jesus Christ. This quote from F.F. F. Bruce, he says, a truly emancipated believer like Paul is not in bondage to his own emancipation. In other words, freedom in Christ is a beautiful thing, but sometimes our expression 
And so Paul says, listen, if they don't want me to eat meat, I don't need to eat meat. I'll eat vegetables the rest of my life if it means my brother is going to not be led into the temptation to himself sin. I won't keep any of these things if it means my brother is going to be led into sin. Or I'll keep all of these things if it means I'm going to not sear the conscience of my weaker brother, as was the case here in Jerusalem. You see, when we are asked to act within the bounds of cultural sensitivities or even denominational traditions, so long as it does not compromise the gospel, we do well in accommodating their requests. You say, but what about my rights in Jesus, right? We live in an age where we always want to uphold our rights and our freedoms. Far be it from us to be subjected to anyone, even our weaker brother in the Lord. You know, let them grow up. Let them figure it out. I'm going to keep living as I want to live, right? Our freedoms. I can do this. Christ said I can eat meat. I don't need to worry about eating meat. Christ said I can use any Bible translation I want because he didn't put a law about a Bible translation. Christ said I can pray in any way in which I want. I can kneel or I can stand. I can close my eyes. I can keep my eyes open. I can do it however I want to do it. But no, if your brother is led to sin because of your behavior in which you are living as a free person in Christ, it is better for us to say, listen, I don't need to do these things if it is going to cause my brother to stumble. You see, we can become quite selfish when it comes to demanding our own rights. And in this, we often show that we ourselves have some maturing to do also. If we are unwilling to submit or to accommodate the weaker brother, it shows that we ourselves have not taken heed to what the Scripture often teaches for us to be doing to give accommodation to the weaker brother. Because after all, to us, what is meat? You know, what is a song or, or a traditional song or a, or a contemporary song? Or, or what is the ESV versus the King James Bible? What is it? Nothing to us. It doesn't matter. We're, we, don't, we know that these things do not bring us any closer to God than the other thing would do. Because we know that we have been brought close to God solely on the basis of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, the reality for us, oftentimes, we say, I'm not going to give any space to this weaker brother here. I'm going to dig in my heels lest they begin to take advantage of me here. That is the wrong attitude. You see, the principle which exists in the world, which is the law of the jungle, which is ultimately the survival of the fittest, has no place in the kingdom of God. But rather, the stronger gives way to the weaker in order that they can build up their brother in the Lord. This does not mean that you just always accommodate them without saying, hey, you know, you realize what Christ taught here in this particular passage. That you don't have to live in this way any longer, right? You realize this, right? You can do this in love to them, but what it does mean is that you must accommodate them until they get to that point where Christ has strengthened their faith in that area. Romans chapter 14 is a, is a beautiful example of this, and I'm going to read all of it so we can see it. You might want to turn there. It'll be on the screen too, but you may turn there so you can see it as well. Romans 14 as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us live to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might both be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. 
So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever there thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You see, this principle is clearly laid out there from the Apostle Paul, and we see him living it out here in Acts chapter 21, verse 17 to 26. That is, that if your brother comes to you because they are weak in the faith, and by not seeing you live out what they themselves are living is causing them to stumble, you can accommodate yourself to the weaker brother. And this is what we see Paul doing here in verse 26. You see, after we understand the issue, the the tension that's created in the fellowship, and after we work together to have this solution, once we mutually agree on that pathway forward for fellowship, we live it out. We act it out immediately so that our fellowship is immediately restored and we can have reconciliation with the body of Christ. Verse 26, it says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. You see, Paul agreed to do this. He agreed to accommodate the weaker brother here. This is shown in the fact that Paul went with the request that he was asked to do. Not only would this go a long way towards Paul showing his unity with them, but also this was a lot of money for Paul to spend here. Paul was making a sacrifice to do this here, and sometimes when we ourselves accommodate the weaker brother, we know that we may have to make a very strong sacrifice in doing so. Now, there are some who, again, say that Paul has compromised here. Paul agreeing to do this was totally wrong. How could Paul do these things here? I want us to see that Paul himself, again, has done nothing wrong here in order that we would be able to practically live out this principle in our own life if we are called upon to do so. You say, does Paul compromise here? Not in the slightest sense. Rather, what Paul does here is show that he is consistent in his behavior when he fellowships with individuals who have cultural sensitivities that differ from other particular cultures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul lays down this principle. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You see, Paul, in agreeing to do this, was consistent in what he did. When he was with the Gentiles, he wouldn't do this. He was not going to put a stumbling block in front of the Gentiles to make them think that they themselves needed to participate in this practice. 
When Paul took the Nazarite vow or when he took uh, and observed Passover in Acts chapter 20, he did not make this a, a demanding thing for the Gentiles to do while he was there. Rather, he himself just kept it as one who was a Jew living amongst Gentiles. But when he lived totally amongst the Gentiles, he wasn't going to do any of these things because he knew that it would put a stumbling block between them. But you see, when he was with Jews, those who he was kinsmen according to his flesh, he himself certainly would live as they did in order that he would be able to fellowship with them in a more precise and concise way. And in none of these things did he sin, rather, in accommodating to the needs of the people he met with and fellowship with, he was following the example of Christ so that he might win some to Christ and be united to those who were Christ's. You see, when Paul calls on the believers, and when we call on one another to this, accommodating the weaker brother, we are simply following after what Christ himself did in, in, in making himself weak for our sake in order that we could become forgiven through our faith in his name and his name alone. Had Christ had not done what he had done, this principle would never have been able to exist. But because of what Christ did in setting this example, when Paul lays out for the individual believers to do this, he is merely seeking to call on them to follow the example of Christ. When we do this, when we accommodate to the weaker brother, we are following the example of Christ. Romans 15 denotes it to us. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of encourage, or endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. You see, when Paul is calling on individuals to do this, and when he himself is doing this in, in the presence of the Jewish Christians or of the Gentile Christians, he's not doing this in order that he would set a pattern for people to follow, but rather he, as always, is following in the footsteps of Christ and giving way to the weaker in order that they would be able to be united together as equal members in the body of Christ. You see, what's uh, often so ironic about this is when we seek to uphold our freedoms that we live in in Christ, we often seclude ourselves from the body of Christ. We, we seclude ourselves from the body of Christ, and this is always to our own detriment. You see, when we say, I'm going to live in my freedoms, we seclude ourselves from those who are weaker in the faith, who we have an opportunity to build up rather than tear down, and therefore we can see them grow in the faith rather than be torn down in the faith. I remember many years ago here on Easter, this was, oh man, probably eight years ago, there was an individual who came here to our church and, and he, was, uh, he was talking to me about the churches he had been brought up in and he had this notepad and he had a list of like 10 things that needed to be had in the church if he was going to fellowship in that church. I don't remember all of them because it's been a long time, but I remember looking at those and I was thinking to myself, this guy is not going to find any church whatsoever if this is the checklist which he needs to make uh, meet of. It was like just things, got to have an organ. So we, we met that. I was like, oh, we, we met one of the checklist things, but he never came back. So I guess we didn't fulfill his uh, requirements there. But nonetheless, what I thought about with this individual here was that this is an individual is never going to find the right church. And on top of this, the church he does find, he is going to be a hindrance to the fellowship of that church. Why? Because he's always going to have a complaint. He's always going to complain. He's going to complain about the music or he's going to complain about the Bible translation or he's going to complain about the time they meet or the day they meet or how often they meet or how long they meet. He is going to be 
horrible for bringing about unity in the body of Christ. You see, we must be willing to surrender ourselves to the weaker brothers in order that our fellowship can go forward without further division. You see, after all, what is food? You know, what is a day? What is a worship style? What is the King James Version or the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Bible? What are these things? These things are not meant to divide us. They are not, they are, they are not things in which are eternal. Rather, the, the thing which is an eternal uh, reality for us is that we will always be members of the body of Christ. Therefore, we must major on the major things and not the minor things which always create distractions in the church and thereby disrupts the church's witness in the world for Christ's sake. Now, it is sure that we will have our preferences, but we must not allow our preferences to become the rule And when we are asked to accommodate our weaker brother for the sake of our fellowship, we need to be willing to accommodate that in order that we can focus on what truly matters, that is God and His glory. This is what Paul says the reason for all of it is. The reason we accommodate to the weaker brother is Romans 15, verse 6, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are not united, we are not glorifying our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ with one voice. Rather, we got a million different voices doing a million different things, and therefore we are simply divided. But you see, we as a church, as we continue to live out this great Christian unity that we have here, which has been produced by the Spirit of God, must continue to live out these principles which we see developed and established here in the Apostle Paul's life and throughout the life of the church. And that is that if there ever is a problem which inhibits our fellowship, we listen to that problem. And then, once we understand what the problem is, we come together as a church to collectively consider a solution going forward. You know, there may come a time when we want to change the Bible translation, right? This may happen. There may be another Bible translation that's a little bit easier to read. Much like Pastor Richard and I, we preach from the ESV and not the King James Version. Never been a problem, you know, not an issue here. But if it was, say it was, how would we present a solution going forward? Once we understand that solution, well, then we agree on that pathway forward and we live by this. Now, I thought up of three questions that I think might be helpful for us to understand how to live out these principles of accommodating to the weaker brother's request, and they are this. First question we can ask and how we can helpfully, uh, how we can practically live this out is first, is God opposed to me doing this? If God is opposed to me doing this, do not accommodate that request. If someone is asking you to accommodate their request because they themselves are still in unrepentant sin, do not accommodate to that request. Rather, call them to repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. We never accommodate the request of a weaker brother who is living in sin. Second thing we ask ourselves is, what is to gain in terms of my fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ by me doing this or not doing this? Again, we're counting the cost. Okay, how big of an issue is this? How, how much of an issue is this here? You know, if a church asks me to come and preach sometime and they say, well, we want you to preach from the, uh, uh, the NIV, you know, am I going to say, oh, I'm not going there because I'm not going to preach from the NIV? You know, how, what, what is that to me? Well, who cares, right? I can go and I can say this is, this is going to prevent me from preaching uh, to another body of Christ. Well, I need to go there and preach to them. And so if they want me to preach from the NIV, I'll preach from the NIV. So what is to gain in my terms of fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ by me doing this or not doing this? And thirdly, will doing this lead to more confusion or more edification as we fellowship as the body of Christ? You see, we wish to have, have, have order in our fellowship. We wish to have a fellowship where we can come to gather, where there is not tension, where there is not this, you know, this constant bickering or walking in on eggshells. There is rather this desire that we would be coming together as the body of Christ, as we do every single week, for the mutual edification 
for one another. And so with those, I think that we can, by the Spirit's power, seek to practically live out whenever there is an issue like this that arises in our fellowship. I don't think of any right now. I can't think of any right now. But if they do come, we must always understand what the Word of God says to this in order that our fellowship would be united. That if we disagree with someone, we don't immediately say, I'm not going to that church anymore, right? That doesn't do anything. That divides the church. Why would we leave if we don't get our way over something which is so minuscule and small? You're going to go to the next church, you're not going to get your way there, and you're just going to be church hopping for the rest of your life. No, we must understand this in order that we would be able to work together as a church in unity in order that the body of Christ here in the city of Hollywood would have a witness which lasts which lasts until the Lord calls us home in order that we would be able to preach the gospel to all who come into our fellowship and also those who we reach out to in our community. What I want us to do now is, as we always do, to close our time in prayer here, I want us to pray that the Spirit of God would implant these truths in our minds and in our hearts. And so as I pray, I, I encourage you to pray along with me in order that we can live out these truths when called upon to do so. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this wonderful day that you have blessed us with here. We have been able to gather together in fellowship for, for just many hours now. God, it is just so, so much of a privilege to be able to do this really in harmony, Lord, with great unity and love and joy. And God, I'm just so thankful for the brothers and sisters here who have united to our church and, and, and who are serving here faithfully and who are seeking to do what your will is here in the fellowship. God, I just pray that as we as we learn from this truth here today, Lord, that you would implant them in our hearts, excuse me, and in our minds in order that we would be able to, to constantly know how to act when these problems may come. Because as it is, as we grow, there are going to be differences that we have. As we see new individuals coming or, uh, and going, Lord, we know that there are going to be uh, tension and, and things which exist. God, help us to always remember this truth here, which is laid out in Acts chapter 21 for the glory of your name's sake, Lord, that we would not be divided, that we would not flee when troubles come, but rather that we would press into this in order that we would be able to uh, plan forward what your solution would be in order that we would be able to continue to be unified here as the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your spirit who is going to impart these truths into our hearts now. And we ask all of these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.